take a look on the screen of this uh, nativity scene. How many of you have uh, some version of this at your home right now as a part of your uh, de Christmas, uh, Christmas decor? Or maybe you grew up, uh, this was a staple uh, at your home growing up. Anybody? A lot of people? Uh, Nativity scene has been a source of inspiration for people. It's been the subject of some controversy as it relates to separation of church and state. It's used, uh, it's on display in private homes and residences. It's been in public squares in many uh, countries around our globe. And what I love about the nativity scene is that it's it just, just shows us the uh, extraordinary ordinariness of people in the Christmas story, which is really good news for a guy like me. I don't know if anybody can feel me on this, but I'm just glad that the Christmas story is chock full of ordinary folk. Uh, we see uh, in this story shepherds. The shepherds were uh, lowly people. Uh, they were country folk. They weren't country club. They were country folk. We see wise men, a group of guys who were, and I love this, uh, they were not believers in God yet. They were spiritual seekers, which is a good thing for the preacher to acknowledge today. Uh, everybody's welcome here, and many of you, or I should say some of you, are on that, a journey, a spiritual journey of seeking, and you have yet to say, hey, Christ, come into my life. I'm not yet a believer. You're not devout in your faith, but you're, uh, you're on a journey. You're seeking, and we see that in the wise men. They were yet to find God, but they were on this journey from the east uh, seeking Jesus. They would actually come later, so they sh actually shouldn't technically maybe be in the nativity scene. But uh, anyway, uh, there is, of course, in this scene, the creator God. Let this blow your mind for a second. There's the creator God, the God who slung the galaxies into being. And scientists tell us in our day that if you were to travel, uh, it would take 100,000 light years to travel from one end of our Milky Way galaxy to the other, and that if everybody, almost 8 billion people on planet Earth today were to receive a share, uh, an equal allotment of stars in, our, uh, in the sky, that we would all walk away with some 2 trillion stars each. This God who slung the galaxies into being, who made DNA, who invented photosynthesis, this God of all of his transcendent greatness, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, this God lay as a defenseless baby. And we see, of course, uh, beyond the shepherds and the wise men and the creator God, uh, we see Mary and Joseph. And these are ordinary, just earthy, down-to-earth down people. And in their story, we see somehow, for some reason, God chose them uh, to give birth to God's only son, the one who would become the savior of the world. Emmanuel, Alpha, Omega, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Light of the World, the Lamb of God, the, the Cornerstone, the Mediator, the Sustainer, uh, the One who would say that He's the Bread of Life, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Resurrection and the Life. This God became man for our sins. This is, as Luke would say, good news of great joy for all people. And this God was born. Anybody remember Larry King who hosted uh, the number one talk show uh, at the time? Larry King would wear those suspenders and he was one of the early pioneers of this type of format of late. It was the number one show um, uh, in, in, on CNN at the time. And he would interview people. He was asked one time if you could interview one person in history, uh, who would you interview and what would you ask him? And his, his response was immediate. He said, I would interview Jesus Christ and I would ask him, were you really born of the Virgin Mary? Because if the answer is yes, it changes everything. 
Jesus would be born in Nazareth. Now, let me ask you, if you were among the wise men and you were spiritually searching for the king, uh, where would you go? Where would you start your journey in looking for the king? Any guesses? You would go probably to the palace, right? Because that's where kings live. They live among royalty and majesty, among wealth and opulence and influence and clout. You would go, you would do what they did. You would start at the palace, but they find them in Nazareth. And Nazareth is a city. Uh, it's a town, rather. It's a, it's a hole-in-the-wall town where uh, it's backwoods. It's full of farmers and fishermen, of shepherds. It's a, a simple place of, of blue-collar workers, simple people who work the land, not of great means. This is Nazareth. In fact, Nathaniel, a man named Nathaniel would ask in John 146, he would say, what good can come from Nazareth? If you're from a small town, anybody from a small town, maybe that's been asked of you or you've asked that question or you're trying to like all those country songs, you're trying to get out of that small town. What good can come from the small town? You hope to be the star uh, from your small town. Look, if you're from Mississippi, like we all can have that feeling today. What good can come from Mississippi? I have a friend, Susan and I do, uh, friends, Rick and Liza Looser. I don't know if any of you know them. I saw a few heads nod in the 930 service. They own an ad agency uh, out on Airport Road called the uh, CeeLo Agency. And years ago, as Rick tells the story, uh, he was on a plane and a 12-year-old boy from Connecticut was sitting next to him. And when this 12-year-old boy found out that this, at the time, 40-something-year-old man was sitting next to him, and he was from Mississippi, uh, he had a few things to say about Mississippi and a few questions. And Rick was really, uh, he, he describes it as a moment where he realized uh, we've got to do better with our image uh, around uh, the country. M Mississippi, you know, can, can any good thing come from Mississippi? And so uh, he developed what would become an ad, uh, an award-winning ad, uh, a series of ads. Maybe you saw some of these back in the uh, years. It was called Mississippi Believe It. Yes, we wear shoes. A few of us even wear cleats. You see Jerry Rice, Brett Favre, Steve McNair, and Walter Payton. Another one goes like this. Yes, we can read. A few of us can even write. You see Grisham and uh, some of the others are William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams and Eudora Weltley and Willie Morris and many others there. The next one, uh, no black, no white, just the blues. You see B.B. King and, and uh, Bo Diddley and my man uh, Robert Johnson Muddy waters and, and guys there. Uh, the idea is, hey, there's some good things that come out of Mississippi. And th that's how this story played out in that part of the world. It wasn't a king in a palace in an urban, sophisticated, cosmopolitan place. It was a savior king who would be born in a hole-in-the-wall place among simple people. And so the extraordinarily ordinary of this story of the people makes me feel good and makes me want to enter into it and invite you into it. What good can come uh, from Nazareth? Well, a savior king can come from Nazareth. Why? Why would God choose Mary and Joseph? Why would he choose this ordinary, down-to-earth couple to, to be the parents of the savior of the world, his one and only son? I think the answer is found really in one thing. The prophet would, Isaiah, would prophesy many times over about this coming Messiah. And in one place, Isaiah 66, uh, verse 2 and part B. Don't you like it when a preacher throws an A or B at you? Makes you wonder about A. Y'all read it later. I just want to emphasize this part. Isaiah 66, 2B. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. The Hebrew here, look at this word. It's one that we can all say. It's nabat. 
It means to esteem, to regard with pleasure, to respect, to be impressed. Can God be impressed? Can you live in such a way? Can you uh, bear fruit in your life and cultivate your character in such a way that God would be impressed with you, that he uh, would regard you with pleasure, that he would uh, show uh, respect towards you? We don't think about that a lot of times. We think of God as being out there and up there, and we worship him, and we're small and tiny and such. But God is saying, Isaiah is saying to us, hey, here's what God is looking for. Here's a life who impresses me. And he looks, and at this time, He's looking at this couple, I think, who are humble and they're contrite, they're surrendered, uh, they tremble at God's word. Can I say that that's a life that impresses God? A life where you uh, move away from pride and ego, you move away from the mentality of, I got this God, I know better than you, God. You move further and further away from that toward a life of groundedness, a, a life of humbleness where you're surrendered to God and you tremble at his word you realize that what he says is true and right and good that you can trust him even if it seems like you can't even if it's different from this world and it will be uh, that you can trust him to be good in your life and he finds this in this couple Mary and Joseph they're humbled they're surrendered and they tremble at his voice can I just say part of the story of Christmas is one that may make us blush in church, but uh, Joseph and Mary, their character was such, and this is still true today, that they waited uh, to express the full physical expression of their love until they were married. They waited in this area. They trembled at God's word. They realized that God's word is better than man's approval. God's word is better than them doing things like the world does it. That God is serious about what he says. And he cares about our formation, our purity, and our holiness, and our character. The things that uh, seem to be disdained in this world. Uh, he esteems. He cares about it. And Joseph and Mary took God seriously. Can I ask you if you tremble at God's word? That's not a phrase that we use a lot from Isaiah 66 to be, but it's true and it's needed to be true. And I just want to say to you, um, some of you want God's blessing and favor in your life. You're looking to be seen by him and impress him. You need him to move. Look, that's all legit. But is your life yielded to him? Are, are you, is the posture of your heart, is the trajectory of your feet, is it pointed to obedience toward him? I want to challenge you today to learn from this couple that God was impressed with, that God chose to bless. Be impressed with them and be drawn to them and decide to cultivate your own character, to take God at his word, morally, ethically, financially, sexually, relationally, verbally, visually, all these important areas. Consider what God has to say. He has your best in mind, your provision, your protection, the guardrails that are necessary in your life. You guys know as, as a, I'm not just a preacher, I'm a pastor. That means I get a front row seat into many people's lives. They honor me with their testimony and they tell me of their pain and struggle where they disregarded God's guardrails. Can I just say, and this matters the younger that you are in this room, don't do that. And what we can learn from this story, I don't want to miss it in the Christmas story, is that we see a couple humble and surrendered who tremble at God's word, and they want to do it God's way. Put yourself in Joseph's work boots. Joseph was a carpenter. Joseph was on the edge of poverty. 
Joseph worked hard to provide for his family. Uh, Mary, like all girls back then, like most girls back then, was getting young, uh, was getting married rather at a very young age in her early teens. This is not prescriptive, by the way, for kids in our generation. So don't, you don't go doing this. But it was the way that it was then. We have to read the Bible through its uh, accurate historical cultural context. That's what happened then. So you see Mary and Joseph um, living in Nazareth. And they, the Bible would later tell us in this great Christmas story that they went to the temple during, um, they went to the temple in Jerusalem during the day of purification, uh, according to the law of Moses, to offer a sacrifice. And they could not offer the customary lamb. They had to offer two pigeons, what we would later sing about, two turtle doves. And so Mary and Joseph offered what was called the sacrifice of peasants. They were unable to offer the traditional lamb. But it's these people that God chose to use. Imagine the scandal, though, because this is right before. Put yourself in Joseph's carpenter work boots. This is right before the angel appears to him and tells him what's up, because he didn't know what's up. Imagine being Joseph, and you're walking with Mary, who have, you have not been with, who you are waiting for. And she tells you on this day at your doorstep, she says, hey, I'm pregnant. And notice Joseph's response. This is a good dude right here. Joseph says this in Matthew 1, 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is what the law of Moses dictated at the time. Focus on the first part of it. It's what we can understand and appreciate in our day. Here's Joseph who is experiencing the sting of betrayal. They're, uh, they're this small town, they're about to get married. Do you know what that means in a small town back then? Weddings lasted a week sometimes. This was the social event on the calendar. Could you imagine if you put yourself where Joseph is and then bam. And so he's already in the goodness of his character, he's thinking of her, of not wanting, he knows what he has to do according to the law, but he's not wanting her to be disgraced. Continue with the story. This is after the angel appears in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's uh, enter into this for a moment and think about their obedience, to think about the fear, to think about how they didn't script their lives to go this way. And this jarring occurrence, uh, they didn't know what a blessing it would be at the time. But because they were humble, because they were surrendered, contrite, Isaiah would say, because they trembled at the word of God, the, the, the posture of their lives was obedience. They were ready um, for God to work in them. Now, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you brought a Bible today or you want to look on the screen, we're going to put it up in just a second. Luke chapter 1. We're going to read a stretch of scripture. Luke 1, 26 to 38. So several verses here. Follow along with us. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 uh, to 38. And let's see a little bit of how this story plays out. And God, you know, God always works in community. Some of you want to see God work in your life and you're living in isolation. You're not sharing your dreams or ambitions. You're not talking about uh, your hopes and fears and what you want to see God do. Walk that out in community. Get in a group and share life with others. You'll see that a bit uh, in the story. You always see that in biblical stories. Luke chapter 1, y'all ready? 26 to 38, let's go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her, and here's what the angel said. Greetings. 
You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Angels were always saying that. They also were invoking fear because they're like angels. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and you will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. The beauty of this story. May your word to me be fulfilled. The word that you and I are called to tremble over. May it be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This um, week, it's a common occurrence among our staff to exchange text messages. I bet y'all do that with your friend groups and work groups. But with our work group, it's probably uh, uh, some work and a lot of fun. We just keep each other updated on things that are happening, some things that are happening in your life. And one day in particular... Uh, this is job security for uh, my wife, Susan, as, as our kids minister. But in one day, uh, middle of the week, uh, there were three of our families that had babies on, on the same day. Uh, Clayton and Michelle uh, Justice, Abel and Presley, uh, Lowry and uh, Sterling and Catherine Rose Kidd. Rose Kidd. Y'all know uh, them. They all had a baby. I, I believe it was on the, on the same day. And here's what I know about them. Uh, I know one of those women was pushing for 14 hours in the hospital and uh, they had to figure out another way to get that baby out. But uh, what a hero she is. Thank God I'm a man. Um, but we rejoice with, uh, with these families. And here's what I know about all of them is that they all were looking forward to this day. They all had a physician. They all had a nursery that they were preparing at home. And this was a, a real just great joy. But for Joseph and Mary, uh, they were on the run. They were fleeing. They were traversing uh, the desert. Uh, there was no room for them when they were looking for a birthing suite. In fact, when they were mo moving through uh, the desert, um, they had to find a manure-filled land that was 120 miles, 125 miles from their hometown. And after this baby was born, they had to flee an assassination attempt. They made two treks across the desert with no stroller, uh, no car seat, no car. They had to move, and they went into a foreign land where they lived, history tells us, for three and a half years. Three and a half years of uncertainty. Three and a half years of not knowing. Three and a half years of upending, uprooting their lives, and suspending, altering their careers, and living in a foreign land with all of this uncertainty. But they were sure of one thing. They were certain of God's certainty in them. They were sure that God had spoken, that his word was true, and he was going to be with them no matter what. What an example we see in this couple. In the midst of it, of all that's uncertain, there is a certain one. And that's central to the Christmas story. They were humble. They were surrendered. And they trembled at his word. As part of the Christmas story, Jesus would live in such a way. He would say to his disciples in John 15, I am teaching you all of these things so that you might be full of joy. 
He wants this story of gospel freedom to get in us and to affect us. An early follower of Jesus, a brilliant man named Paul, would say to a young protege named Timothy who was planting churches, he would say, the goal of our instruction is love. Love and joy. These qualities God desires to produce in us. It's essential to the Christmas story. When Jesus would be born, he would grow up. In Luke 2, 52, it tells us he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's every area, every basic area that you and I can grow in, socially, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. It says Jesus grew. And he would grow up and he would offer his life. He would teach as the master teacher, Matthew 7. Uh, They were astonished at his teachings. No one had ever taught with this kind of authority before. Read the Gospels and tell me if there's a teacher close to Jesus. Any preacher like me at any church, any place of faith, a house of worship, man, the best we got is the words of Jesus. It can't get any better than that. And he taught and he lived and he laid down his life. He made promises that we can embrace, that we do joyfully. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. Ask what you will. It will be done in you. He'll answer your prayer. He'll meet your needs. He also said in John 16, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Don't you know that's true? And everything that Jesus said was true. And he's the only one in the history of the world that predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. And Jesus said, I want you to have joy. But he told these disciples before he left, they didn't really get it then. He said, I'm going to send my spirit to be with you. And this joy, it's only going to grow in you. Oh, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have a lot of trouble. The world hates you. You're going to be persecuted. But you'll have joy. You'll have love. And you'll have a home forever in heaven. And he promised them his spirit would come and live within them and you know this we preach it a lot around here the fruit of the spirit is a promise and it's part of the christmas story it's the results of the christmas story look at galatians 5 22 and 23 but the fruit of the spirit y'all know what it is it's love and joy it's peace or patience forbearance it's kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law god is saying that he wants to produce this inside of us Uh, When he would say, when Paul would say in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, he he would say, don't get drunk with wine. Some of you know this verse. Don't get drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that an odd command? Why did Paul uh, say that? Has anybody seen or heard the movie Cocaine Bear? Anybody aware that that's out? I'm going to go see it. I'm going to take the church van and go see Cocaine Bear if anybody wants to join me this week as part of our Christmas experience. But the Cocaine Bear is a bear, ready for this, that ate a lot of cocaine. And it's basically, Hollywood's doing Hollywood. I think it's part comedy, part horror movie. I don't know, I'm going to find out when I take the church van and we go. But, uh, but it's uh, apparently, uh, I did a little research, not on the movie, but on, on, on the, the true part of the story. But drug smugglers were flying over the southeastern part of the United States many years ago and the plane crashed. It uh, killed the drug smugglers and cocaine was littered across a hillside outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And some, uh, at least one bear uh, got a lot of cocaine and he was, on, he was photographed and it, it changed his life. Uh, whatever cocaine does, anybody want to stand up and tell us what? No, no. Uh, but uh, cocaine affected him however cocaine affected you and it really got into the bear and just messed him up and he ended up dying. Of course, Hollywood took the movie and they make the bear funny and a, a murderer and I think he's going to kill a lot of people. But the idea is a very simple one about cocaine bear is, you know, there's the bear, but the bear's radically changed by a substance that got inside of him that permeated 
the inside of him. And it changed everything about him. And so pardon the illustration, if you will. I'll probably want to take that one back. I've done it twice now. But, uh, but Paul says, uh, don't be filled with uh, alcohol. And uh, because alcohol, and you know this when, you know, not you, of course, but when you've seen drunk people, it changes them. Extroverts become introverted, sad and melancholy. Uh, Introverted people become strangely extroverted and are doing uh, stupid things like Will Ferrell in old school, you know, streaking naked and all this stuff. It changes you, but it got on the inside and it got into your bloodstream and it alters the way you think, the way you see life. And that's an example of the spirit-filled life for us. On the good side, without the drugs or alcohol, God is saying, I want my spirit to get inside of you and affect you. And even in the midst of difficult circumstances, and y'all know we live in the world that's busted up and broken, that even in the midst of this, you can have joy if you let me get inside of you, if you let me work inside of you. There is this word that's a really beautiful one when we talk about being humble and surrendered and trembling at God's word. There's this word humus. Now, this isn't the stuff that you eat at Kralakis or Kiefer's uh, with your pita chips or whatever uh, at uh, Greek or um, Mediterranean restaurants. This is uh, the dark organic material. We're just going with Webster's here. That's the dark organic material in soils produced by the decomposition, decomposition of vegetable or shall we say animal matter and essential to the fertility of the earth. Here's what agronomists can tell us is that when old things die, the earth is fertilized. And it improves the nutrients and allows things to grow. It, it, it helps with water retention and soil moisture and content and acidity, etc., etc. Things grow, good things grow when old things die. And can I say to you today, part of this Christmas story is we think about joy and the Holy Spirit and what Jesus has done for us and being the Savior of the world, of being the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. These things, this reality for us, guys, is that we ourselves need to think about the soil of our own hearts. What, let me ask you, what in your life needs to die so that God can grow in you? What old things need to die so that new things can begin? What old attitudes, what old encumbering, besetting sins need to be left off, need to wilter? need to be choked out and not nourished and fed. And some of us, look, I'm I'm, I'm a sinner like you, man, but I've just had an opportunity recently to sit up and close with some people and they're just like, they want want God's blessing, but they're choking off. Uh, They're not not letting things die and they're feeding what's bad in their lives. And and look, the same temptation is true in my life. Um, We've got to fight this. We've got to be concerned. And here's the thing for us. There's something about us. We're so concerned about production that we forget soil preparation. And today I'm submitting to you today that the Spirit wants to develop and grow in you. Love and joy and peace and gentleness and forbearance and goodness and self-control and all these qualities that Paul sets forth. He wants these to be grown inside of you. And you and I, don't we long for it? Don't we long for it? Um, a love that 1 Corinthians says is, is, is not irritable. A love that's patient. A love that doesn't keep record of wrongs. I know a, a family, they're getting divorced. And the dad is becoming estranged with the children. There's no affair that we know of. There's no money mismanagement. Very successful uh, people on the outside. 
But as we spoke this week, he said, Robert, we're angry and we're irritable and we're just, we just keep a record of wrongs. And I was looking at a man, I know that I can look back in the mirror and see me at this at times in my own shortcomings. But we need love, a different kind of love to be produced in us. Some of you, I'm imploring you today, don't give up on love. Don't let your faults and your failures overtake you. Give God room to produce his spirit in you. And don't even worry about the production of this fruit. Worry about the soul preparation, the soil preparation in your own heart. Show you a, a picture of um, Matthew Perry, uh, a.k.a. Chandler and Friends. A.k.a. with Bruce Willis in uh, Whole Nine Yards. Um, some of you know the Matthew Perry story, his book, autobiography that I just looked at, a memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. Do you know what the big terrible thing is? For Matthew Perry, some of you know this story. Look, I speak grace over you. Look at me. I speak grace over you. Some of you know what he feels, the big terrible thing. You're caught in the vice grip of addiction. And many times, this handsome, rich, funny actor has been on the brink of death because of the big terrible thing. And in reading his autobiography, his memoir, look what he says at one point. I'll, I'll, top paragraph, I started to cry. I mean, I, I, I really started really started to cry, that shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God, and wrestling with life and sadness, always being washed away like a river of pain, gone into oblivion. The underlined red part. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I had prayed for the right thing for help. Bottom line. I stayed sober for two years based solely on that moment. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He had saved me that day and for all days no matter what. He had turned me into a seeker not only of sobriety and truth but also of him. So I don't know how the Matthew Perry story is going to play out. And I'm not setting him up as a bastion of this is how to live. But I want to say what he writes about here in his memoir, you and I need a dose of. Which is we need to cry out for help. We need to be humbled. And we need to be of contrite spirit. We need to be surrendered to him and to tremble at his word. We can't do it on his own. It's interesting that the word um, humus, uh, we get our word humanity and also what our word humility. is from the same root word structure. For us to say, hey, we are of the earth. That's where we came from. We are but dust. We are but a vapor, James chapter 4. Just here, a mist. Just here for a little while. And that should induce in us humility, a humbleness to stay grounded and to have perspective and not to get too full of ourselves, to know our need for God. And if your bills are being paid and you're sitting next to someone who likes you, really likes you, and they're not going to leave you, and you have your health and you have things going, praise God for all of that, uh, but be humble about it and see it as his blessing and his gift, but be ready. You know, the job of a preacher, if you read the Bible, the job of a preacher, part of what's in my job description is not just to preach platitudes and feel good things to you is to get you ready with the truth of God for suffering that's going to come your way because it's coming your way but this word humus is human it's humility and it's what God desires to produce uh, in us let me put it this way it's the Holy Spirit's job to produce the fruit that's his part so if you've tried to love at home 
and it's not working for you and maybe you're irritable and easily angered and you're keeping a record of wrongs, which is terrible for a marriage. If that's you, can I just say reach out for help? But you need to come to an end with that. Lean on him to produce that in you. Just like a foreign substance can enter into you and alter you, that's the promise that the Spirit can do for you if we abide and yield to him. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit. That's his part. Don't try to play God's part. But soil preparation, that's our part. So as we close, as we look at this story of this nativity of Joseph and Mary in manure, ordinary, down-to-earth people who God was impressed with because they were humbled, they were humble, they were grounded, they were secure, they were surrendered, and they trembled at his word. What about the own, your own preparation? What soil preparation do you de- need to do? I asked you earlier what needs to die in your life. Well, what needs to be watered and cultivated in you? From 1933 to 1939, um, the world was introduced to one of the worst um, environmental disasters in its history. It wasn't on an Alaskan shoreline or in the rainforest of Amazon. It was in the American heartland. The prairie states, they're called. And there was a severe drought that lasted for a long, long time. There were wind storms, dust storms that came and blew. And this is hard for the mind. I know you're going to fact check me when I say this. But over 100 million acres of land in America's heartland was gone to waste. A writer at the time, a newspaper writer at the time, called it this. He said it was an apocalyptic, apocalyptic landscape littered with the skeletal remains of starving cattle and rusty farm equipment. At one point, as this 100 million acres that was once fertile grasslands became scorched and barren, one, of the, one storm alone allegedly swept uh, dust and debris um, 350 million tons, some of it traveling as far as the Atlantic. It was enough experts weighed in later to say that it would cover the city of Chicago by two feet, the whole city. And in this, the farmers shared some of the weight of this. You see, in their eagerness for profit, that's justifiable, but in their ignorance of the land that God had created, um, they did not understand and appreciate how precious a few inches of topsoil is. And so they farmed and farmed and they tried to get away with it. And so in 1935, your history books will show you, America said that uh, we cannot allow 100 million plus acres to be discarded. It is essential for us. And so they formed the Soil Conservation Society, the Soil Conservation Act, where farmers were basically taught a philosophy of the earth um, uh, to understand the soil that in the midst of all this big earth, there's only a few inches of sustainable topsoil and it's got to be properly cared for. And just as we get excited about harvesting a crop, the farmer must care about the topsoil. It must be fertilized and watered and and tended to so that it can grow. You see, here's what grows. When things die, new things are given life. And what is new must be cultivated and we must think about every season that we could enter into. It's the Holy Spirit's job to produce love and joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit in you. But it's your job and mine to to concern ourselves with soil preservation. 
preparation, to think about what's going in our lives. And so let me ask you, in what ways are you neglecting your character formation? In, in what ways are you adding nutrients to the soil of your heart so that God can grow what he needs to grow in your life? Man, wouldn't it be a shame if we just saw the Christmas story as something distant in history that makes us feel good for a few weeks once a year? What if the Christmas story was a Holy Spirit story of love and joy and peace? And what if it anchored itself in you and me? And what if this place, you know, a couple years ago during COVID, we lit up our building. If you, some of y'all live in the neighborhood, appreciate it. We added lights to the stained glass and all around the steeple and everything. One of them's out. We've got to get that fixed. But we've added lights, and it's a good thing. But what if we were a light? What if we were a light in our community to our neighbors and to the nation? What if we radiated with love and joy and peace? To produce fruit, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But to prepare soil, that's your job. Notice the Bible doesn't say, it doesn't put being humble in the fruit of the Spirit. It, it doesn't put gratitude in there. All those, th- those things are important. And I thought about it long and hard this week. I think I'm right when I say this. It's not in there because that's our job. James would say in James chapter 4, humble yourselves. Growing in, in being humble, that's your job. Surrendering yourself, that's your job. That's what you can do to prepare the soil for God to grow what he wants to grow in you look with me at luke as we close and lauren and the team comes up we'll sing and go in a moment look at part of this story before it gets into the um the stuff of luke 2 that some of you read with your family around the christmas tree or dinner table and mary said my soul glorifies the lord look what the spirit has produced in her and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has been mindful of what y'all He's been mindful of the humble. Do you know the Bible says, just one more time for the folks in the back, he resists the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here we see it in different language. For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. No look at me, no self-congratulations. Just he's seen me as a humble servant. There's nothing that can be said greater about your life. You say, Robert, I'm an athlete, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, I'm a butcher, a candlestick maker. You know, whatever you are, that's great. I'm proud of you. But nothing can be said greater about you than you're a humble servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Would you stand? Father, would you impress it upon us? that it's the Holy Spirit's job, your job, to produce fruit in us. It's our job to prepare the soil, to put in a humble humble status in our hearts, to, to get lowly, to be surrendered and contrite. And just like this Hollywood celebrity that we would cry out, even if people are loving us and bills are paid and our job is good and our health is adequate and all these things for us not to get cocky not for us to be proud but for us to be grateful for us to cry out and know that we need you we know we know to know that we need you to be our savior to save us from the penalty of sin because we cannot do it on our own and to save us from the dominion and power of sin because we cannot do it on our own so minister in this place as we sing and worship and go in christ we pray Just as we did the first hour, we want to open up this front of the room. My microphone will be off. The camera will not capture you. Uh, 
but we would love to invite you to come down and kneel at the altar to pray a prayer of joy or to cry out in need or to embrace one of us down front. If there's a spiritual direction or decision that you're needing to make, we would love to be here for you. And let's take the moments. We're going to get you out on time. Let's take this moment now to be obedient. Let's all stand. You're doing that. Let's sing and, uh, and let's pray together. We're here for you.